Hello. So I think we are now live across all our many platforms. We're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, possibly other places that I don't know about. We should be everywhere now. Hello, Jamie. Hello, Sienna. Nice to see you. Yeah, you too. So uh, I'm Sienna Rogers. I'm editor of Labourlist. And we ran these kind of in conversation events, quite a lot of them. I've been in the early stages of pandemic, um, a lot in 2020. And then we kind of took a pause as people kind of knew the shadow cabinet members, knew the, kind of the candidates uh, in elections. And now I think we're going to try and revive this series. And we're starting with Jamie. So we're going to talk to some of our mayors and find out what they're up to. Um, so Jamie Driscoll is Labour's Metro Mayor in uh, North of Tyne. So that's the North of Tyne combined authority. And he's the first directly elected mayor. And before that, he was a Newcastle councillor. He'd only been a councillor for about a year, I think, before he announced that he was going to run against Nick Forbes, the council leader. Um, so he was elected as mayor in 2019. And we're going to find out what he's been up to, what he thinks about the issues of the day and what his plans are. So, from what I've read, you're uh, a black belt in jiu-jitsu, is that true? Uh, that is true, yeah. Yeah, I'm a third down black belt in jiu-jitsu. Wow. Um, <laughs> does that ever come in handy as mayor? Um, it, it does, actually. The ability to remain calm under pressure um, is really useful. Um, the more hands-on side of it, um, I think it's probably best kept out of direct politics. Yeah, yeah, probably. You might get in trouble. Um, so you uh, also, you were an organiser, weren't you, and, and co-chair of Newcastle Momentum, is that right? Um, yes, yeah, yeah, I was organiser uh, in Momentum um, through 2017-2018, yeah, um, indeed. Um, prior to that though, um, an engineer by profession uh, and a software developer. Um, the, it's interesting actually, I mean, you're asking about the, the jiu-jitsu there, Sienna. Um, in my younger days, I was actually quite actively involved in anti-fascist work. Um, and there were times there when it um, it was useful to have some confidence in your self-defense ability. Let's, let's leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was going to also, I mean, just start off by, as I was saying, COVID, we started having a lot of these online events because of COVID. Um, and your i think your wife works in the nhs and your sister works in the nhs is that right i mean what was right. what was covid like for you in terms of kind of the pandemic in terms of your personal life but also you started this job did it kind of hold back in terms of setting up all that mayoral work i read that you kind of started with a really small team of just 12 people it, it was yeah i mean when we started i think i had three permanent members of staff and i walked in my first day there were literally more camera and camera crew there than, than personal and then um, permanent members of staff um and um we bust a few apparently i didn't know this bust a few people in for the cameras to make it look like we had, had a bigger team um and um then it's getting on with it and the first month i mean not literally but it was almost just reading cvs uh, and starting to hire people um and then by the time we'd um, done recruitment for the, the senior management team um and People had applied and you do the interviews and had worked the notice. It was January uh, 2020. So then, you know, three months and then you're in the lockdown and it's everybody go home and work from home, which for all of us at that point was, you know, oof, you know, now we don't think much of, of doing a, a Zoom meeting. Um, but then 
it was a lot of people thinking, Zing never heard of it. How do I download this? Um, and so to be setting up and running a combined authority when you're just getting your programs up and running, just getting your governance structures up, just sorting your budgets out, and you know, there are still people coming in. Um, and, and it's interesting. One of the first members of staff that we recruited entirely over the internet, having ne never met them. I always meet the new members of, of staff. Um, and it was a, a young woman who joined straight after university, and I met her about a fortnight in. Um, and and said to her, Beth, do you, do you feel this job is real? He said, no, I'm so glad you asked me that. He says, because um, I've not met anyone and I've not walked into a building anywhere and I've kind of got this feeling it can be taken away from me. And so that the disorientation of that was, was really quite difficult. And yet, despite that, we've done so much. Um, I mean, on a personal level, for me, it, it's in some ways much easier, you know, I've, worked freelance before and, and ran businesses before so we're sort of quite used to a home office um but for a lot of the staff it's difficult when they've got kids at home because they were at the time you know one of our members of staff actually bought a shed for a back garden so she could work there um and and these are the sort of adaptations people are having to make um so it was difficult you know my wife as you say she's a gp and um early stages of the pandemic when the PPP wasn't available and they sort of cobbled things together from all over the place. I've got a picture of her looking like Darth Vader to try and keep safe. Um, so it, it really was a chaotic time. Um, well, I mean, it's still chaotic now when you look at the government response, but, you know, we've, we've all got a bit more used to it. Um, so it was difficult. In terms of what we've achieved with the combined authority in that time, I'm, I'm really... Um, you know, it's, we've had Brexit in that time, we've had a general election in that time, we've had a change of prime minister. We might be due for another change of prime minister any minute. Um, and despite that, we've achieved so much. I'm really proud of it. You know, one of the things is we've got um, the combined, the devolution deal has a target in to create 10,000 jobs over 30 years. So at this stage um, of, my, of my term, I should be on about 890 jobs. Uh, we're on 4,340 jobs created, so we're smashing that out of the park. We had adult education devolved in the middle of a pandemic. And this is training, you know, um, chefs, lorry drivers, these sorts of things in physical skills where you can't actually meet each other. And despite that, for the same amount of money, we increased the number of people um, enrolling by 10%. So we've done all of that. We've built the team together. So, you know, it's, I mean, you can probably tell I love the job. It's great. Um, we are making a difference. And I really think that this, the Labour Party would would really benefit from showcasing what me and the other mayors are doing, the difference we're making in power. You know, it's, it's a long time since Labour's been in power, and it was, in some sense, a different era. It's pre-austerity. Um, and uh, and I think we need to convince people of our of our economic competence. You know, it's good that we're, we're ahead in the polls a bit, but we're midterm, and, you know, it's against, you know, party Johnson. Um, so I, th I think we need to consolidate this by showing what we really can do in power. Yes, well, I'll definitely have more questions about that for you. Um, so, yeah, as you said, you, you were an engineer, that's what you studied, and then you worked as an engineer. Has that kind of shaped your understanding of, you know, what UK industry should look like, and also, of course, a Green New Deal, which is like a central plank in your, in your campaign and in your work as well? I think, I think it has, yeah. I mean, I left school at, at 16. I grew up in a, a part of Middlesbrough that was, uh, <laughs> was pretty rough, um, and I uh, went to study engineering in my 20s. Um, and worked in engineering and then moved into software development. Um, but the um, the private sector experience working with businesses, running my own businesses, running my own software development firm, these sorts of things, 
um, is useful um, of understanding um, the day-to-day running of a business and projects management, all of these things come in very, very handy um, as, as a mayor because there is an element to it, which is, which is basically a CEO for economic development role. And it's much, it's, it's different from an MP. You're not so much um, advocating causes as actually managing um, and delivering projects. Um, and so it has shaped it. Um, and the technical understanding um, I think of of science of transport of all of these things. It does help. You know, I don't claim that you have to be an engineer to understand how transport works, um, but it certainly helps you read through the vast reams of documentation you have a bit faster um, if you've got a technical background. Yeah. I mean, I don't don't take this the wrong way, but I feel like you're a massive nerd <laughs> about all of these things. You seem to, you know, work constantly and really enjoy it and really know the detail. Um, I'm going to take that as a compliment. Um, yes. Um, uh, I'm not even sure what the, the etymology of the word nerd is anyway. Um, but it's one of these words that we, we nerds must reclaim, um, the word nerd. Um, yeah, and on economics, I mean, I ran economics reading groups for, for some years. Uh, and so on things like community wealth building, on understanding you know, why rent-seeking is so damaging for our economy, on understanding um, why boosting wages actually promotes economic growth and it's it's not a bad thing for people to have higher wages in any economic sense all of these things which which allow us to pursue what we've pursued with some real confidence um and um i mean interesting i had a paper published um a few months back in october which is about regional wealth generation which is i think is the, the solution to the economic problems we've got in in the northeast but lots of other parts of england um, even even parts of London, for that matter. Um, so it's sometimes seen that, that devolution or levelling up is about, you know, we must take money off London and give it to the north. It's not. It's not a zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. Uh, investment generates a bigger pie for everyone. Uh, and the way to improve people's lives, basically, which it comes down to, in the north and in the northeast where I represent is to make sure that there's more high quality paid jobs here that the you know that requires better skills training requires a better transport system so it does need investment um but the tools we need are to generate wealth because we can fund this ourselves if we get the right tools so yeah i did publish a very technical paper um uh, actually it's not that technical you know it's you know wouldn't make mainstream media we don't need to be an economist to read it um and that has got a surprising amount of cross-party support you know jim o'neill former tory um, Northern Powerhouse Minister, it was a pain for me to point out that he did resign from the Tory party in protest. Um, you know, so he he's back in it and, you know, CBI, like everything that's in there, lots of things like that. So, you know, there is sometimes it's great when you go into a space where an answer is so obvious that it may have come from a socialist like me, but other people are saying, yeah, actually, this is what we should be doing. Well, the consensus has shifted, hasn't it? When you talk about regional wealth generation, and you also talk about community wealth building. Is there a distinction between those two things? Um, I think community wealth building has lots of pillars to it, They're the five main pillars, um, but it's generally associated in sort of labour circles with procurement uh, and social value. Um, and there is more to it than that. Regional wealth generation is, um, so community wealth building is perhaps keeping the money here, um, and the regional wealth generation is more generating wealthier. So they are perhaps different sides of the same coin. Um, but, so there's, there's no contradiction between the two, but it's perhaps more a difference of emphasis. So regional wealth generation would include things like having a regional wealth fund. Um, so the, the, we, we're actually, we've got some embryonic funds in this now, but I would like to see them much, much larger. Um, where one of the problems 
holding back um, economic development, eradicating unemployment in the Northeast, is that a lot of local firms find it hard, especially startups and smaller firms, find it hard to get the investment they need to grow their businesses. Um, and if we have a regional wealth fund, we can put equity shares you know, uh, in fund these businesses and use it, not just for a commercial basis, but to put it into businesses that are going to have good terms and conditions of employment and back our good work pledge. You know, we've got 35,000 uh, employees covered by that already across um, our region. Um, so you support companies that have got a really good environmental agenda and things like that. Um, and it means that the profits from that go back into the fund to regenerate it, as opposed to disappearing off to Bermuda and Panama and hedge funds, um, and we never see them again. You know, we eradicate that that really predatory part of capitalism first, um, you know, start to get a, you know, a fantastically robust social democratic economy, and then at that point, um, I'll probably be ready for retirement anyway. <laughs> so in terms of the Green New Deal stuff, you wrote in a, a Labour List article in September, you said there's no route to a Labour government without going big and bold on the Green New Deal. So that same month, Rachel Reeves at conference, she announced that £28 billion per year investment for the next 10 years in a green transition. That was kind of one of the biggest announcements at Labour conference. She was talking about gigafactories, offshore wind, planting trees. That all sounds like the kind of thing that you also talk about and advocate. Now, is there anything in Labour's plan at the moment for a Green New Deal that you disagree with? And is there anything, what would you say was missing from that plan? Mm. OK, um, I did speak to Rachel, actually. We were on a panel together at conference uh, about that. Um, yeah, um, I think one of the distinctions you've got to make is um, a green economy is not separate from the economy. So um, of the, the four and a half thousand nearly jobs that we're on in the north, north of time, um, in terms of what we've, we've already created in our pipeline, uh, and that's going to grow, um, it's, a minority of those people are um, building wind turbines or electric vehicles and things like that. A majority of them are doing what we think of as ordinary jobs. Um, however, those jobs can also be part of a green economy. So I've brought a lot of different software firms developing it with really high paid jobs. I mean, some of them average salary of like 54 grand, um, which in the Northeast is great. Um, you know, I want a high paid workforce. Um, but they're developing software that they export over the internet. Now, we don't think of that as the green economy, but it is. Hospitality, if it's done right, is part of the green economy, as is, you know, retrofitting, which is more obviously part of the green economy. So, well. absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, tackling mental health. Well, that shouldn't be causing environmental damage, but it's important. We need to train more people and invest more in it. Um, so the the green economy, as far as the, the Labour plan goes, and I've not seen a detailed plan. I mean, I know what's in previous resolutions. Um, so there are the need to fully um, electrify or decarbonise um, fuel and, and energy generation. And some of that will be green hydrogen. Um, a large part of it will be generating 100% uh, renewable electricity but then there's so much needs doing in terms of retrofitting houses um, but then skills training for people well does that come out the 28 billion or is that part of the skills budget anyway well for me it should be part of the skills budget anyway everything we should do we should do in a, a green sustainable way um, so um, perhaps the 28 figure I'm not sure um, exactly where the bounds of that what the bounds of that cover whether that's additional investment over and above um, you know, we've got um, a gigafactory being built, the, the country's first gigafactory being built in the north of time right now. 
Mm. Um, and that's another 3,000 jobs, by the way. They're not included in the figures we've already got. Um, and then the supply chain for that. And, and if I get a regional wealth fund, I'm, I'm, what I'd really love to do is eradicate unemployment in the north of time. Well, actually, I mean, in the country, but that's, that's someone else's job, not mine. Um, funnily enough, we were having a look at the latest figures and um, unemployment in the north of time is now, for the first time I can ever remember, down to the national average. Um, now, all right, that's not something to go screaming, woohoo, we're, you know, we're only as bad as everywhere else. Um, but that's really remarkable for a region like ours. And the rest of the Northeast, it's not, it's still way above the national average. And the, the difference in those few percentage uh, uh, or points of difference on that are exactly equivalent to the number of jobs we've created and safeguarded through the pandemic. So, so it, it makes a difference. Now, with the Gigafactory, with the extra investment we want to bring in, if I get the tools I want for fiscal innovation, um, we can do that. Unemployment here now is around... That's exactly how you measure it, 22,000, 24,000. Um, and I would love it to get down to just frictional unemployment. You always have people leaving and moving. Um, so, you know, th that's the sort of economic agenda I would love to advance. And, um, you know, I think Labour should be bold. Let, let's go for zero unemployment. I don't think why we should need a, an economy where people are unemployed. Um, and it's not like there's a shortage of things need doing. So that point you made about a kind of... Um the Labour's green transition plan and what you know where are the boundaries of that what's actually was that actually include considering all of our economic plans should be green plans have you discussed that with Rachel Reeves have you brought that up with her? Do, you, do you kind of regularly speak to the shadow chancellor whether it was Rachel Reeves or before that Dodds um no I regularly speak to um, I think we'll be stretching it a bit um have had conversations with on occasion yeah, yeah. um on the, um she did ask for a copy of the the, the paper I wrote um um, but, um, I mean, uh, well, I was, I think it was just earlier today, I was talking to Lisa and Andy about the levelling up agenda and things like that. So um, we'd have some conversations, yeah. yeah. Um, um, I'm going to ask you also about kind of, well, devolution and levelling up, like, like the Lisa and Andy's new brief. So from my understanding is you want a deal for what you would call the Great North Combined Authority, Great Branding, um, that would mean that you could have the same kind of transport powers that's currently enjoyed by Andy Burnham um, and Tracy Braden. You can, you know, talk that they are able to talk about transport, you know, in a in a very labour way. And at the moment, you're saying that that expansion would not go ahead without Northumberland, but the Northumberland Council leader is not so keen on on the idea of this expansion. So tell me a bit more about that. What what's going on at the moment? Where are we up to? Yeah, um, well, the background to this is in um, in the run-up to 2017 when the other mayoral combined authorities were created, there were talks about both the uh, the north and the south part of the, the Tyneside, Tyneweir conurbation coming together. So you've got Newcastle, North Tyneside, and the massive county of Northumberland north of the Tyne. You've got Gateshead, South Tyneside, and Sunderland south of the Tyne, and then, then County Durham as well. Um, and for various reasons, it didn't happen, and people didn't come together, and I wasn't involved at that point. Um I was just an ordinary, ordinary Labour Party member whose, whose opinions were not sought on the matter. Um, and um, after being elected, spoke to the people of South Africa and said, look, it's going to work out a lot better because um, that that discussion failed and the North of Tyne was set up. But the Tyne and Weir metro system, which is the biggest public transport asset in the region, 36 stations north of the river, 24 south of the river, and you can't change the governance of a train as it's crossing a bridge over the river time so they had to set up something called the joint transport committee which meant they weren't going to give us the transport powers which means we're missing out on the transport funding so um 
talking to government ministers and officials, we found out this was coming. We asked them um, for the budget, um, the 2020, March 2020 budget. Can you, um, I don't want to miss out on this, can you find a way where you can sort of hold out onto that money? And if we find a governance solution, you can give us it. And they said, yeah, and they put it in the, the budget. Uh, and so there's been discussions ongoing. Uh, and it's been yeah, a longer journey for some than other than others, but everyone's now in a position um, in case of South Hindsight and something where they're saying, yeah, actually, of course, of course we want extra investment in our transport system. Who wouldn't? Um, Northumberland, the, the council leader, um, has said, um, I'm not saying yes, I'm not saying yet no. I would want the deal to make it worth our while. I don't see at the moment why the deal would be better. Um, although it's notable, actually, that they've lost overall control now as a result of by-elections. Um, and um, a lot of the independents, the Greens, are in favour of this. The Labour group obviously is. So so we'll see what happens there. Um, I think when it comes to reality of hundreds of millions of pounds investment, people get persuaded. Um, so I do think it's very likely to happen. The main reason that I don't, there's a couple of reasons I don't want Northumberland to miss out of is a strong Northumberland is good for a strong Newcastle, is good for a strong Tyneside and vice versa. Um, but secondly, I represent these people. I was elected to represent these people. So I'm not going to you know, cut them loose <laughs> for, for the sake of political expediency. Um, because they need the sort of policies that we're doing. We're creating loads of jobs in Northumberland. We've reopened a, a railway line that connects Lyth and Ashington with Newcastle. Um, you know, so so they need a much better transport system. And the buses in Northumberland are shocking. You know, places like Sea Houses, I don't know well you know the area. It takes three hours to get a bus or a connection, a series of buses from Sea Houses to Newcastle. That's all in my area. You know, I can get to London faster. Well, yeah, when I, I went to university at York and a consistent theme was people complaining that basically I could get to and from home, <laughs> London to York, York to London, so much quicker than they could get home when they lived in the northeast or the northwest because the transport links were so ridiculous and they'd have mm -hmm. to zigzag everywhere just to get home, even though, you know, in terms of distance, it's so much um, closer. I'm, I'm just going to pick up a question here that we've got that I didn't spot earlier, just so that you could address this. Um, Michael asked, I work in the hospitality. What do you mean specifically when you say it's part of the green economy? All industry can be greener, but what do you mean by calling hospitality the green economy? So if you'd like yeah. to just sort of briefly explain that a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Well, that's the distinction um, that I was making, that, that we, we should think of all of the economy in a carbon neutral way. Um, what we tend, the discussions tend to be is, you know, are we going to build wind farms? Are we going to build electric vehicles? But a lot of things that we already do can be greenified, if you like. So these are things like making sure that the buildings are, are zero carbon, making sure they're properly insulated, making sure that the supply chains are as green as possible. So that's the distinction I was making is it's not what people think of as working in a green industry, but it can still be that creating jobs in these things are part of a green economy. He's um, posted a follow-up question. Wasn't Northeast, uh, this about the conversation we were just having, Northeast Transport already or London Nexus before the North of Tyne mayor position was created? Um, no, Nexus um, covers Tyne and Weir, but not Northumberland or County Durham. Um, so um, the Joint Transport Committee covers all of the region, um, apart from Tees Valley, um, but uh, there's a subcommittee that looks after the metro now. Um, the very fairly technical questions we're getting into here. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously, fellow nerds. Um, <laughs> John Paul also asked on Facebook, what progress has been made with the People's Bank? Mm. Yeah, um, that's... Um, so we'd... For background, one of the things that's going to help 
um, with the economy, particularly in the Northeast, um, is a shortage of investment capital. Um, and the banking system is, I think most people who are watching will, will realize is, is a pretty extractive model um, where a lot of the profits get taken out, processed by um, various means of, of, let's say that they're all perfectly legal tax avoidance um, for, for legal reasons. Um, and, uh, and what we need is a finance system that actually works in the interests of the people of our region and, and ordinary working people, wherever it might be. Um, so um, there's uh, a model these have been set up. There's the Welsh model is already um, going through right now. Um, there's work being done in the Northwest and in other places um, to set up these models. Um, so we um, got the business plan. Um, we funded an independent firm of accountants to look at it. They had a look at that. They said, yeah, this is a good plan. It works. It will be profitable. Um, and by the time that happens, we're then hitting the pandemic. Now, one of the key things that we made the decision to do was um, we're not going to start asking small businesses at this point um, to start saying, would you switch your bank account while you're in the middle of this with a bounce back loan and all the rest of it to a new hypothetical banking model? Um, so all of that needs to be out of the way um, before we can do that. So what we have done is um, we've got a paper agreed. It's going through. It's getting worked up. It's going to be happening in the next um I think this quarter, if not then the next quarter this year. Um, and that's a fund that is the Prototype Regional Wealth Fund, which is going to be there for investing in local businesses. Um, and we're exploring options of where people can invest in it. So it wouldn't be a bank account as such, because the Bank of England regulations require you to have gone through and got a full banking license. And that takes um, a long period of time, it takes a couple of years um, to go through all the hoops. Um, and then you're covered. This is getting really nerdy now. Then, that, then you're covered by the um, the Bank of England Insurance Deposit Guarantee Scheme, um, up to eighty five thousand. If the fund goes, then you know, because it's just a banking deposit, it's not seen as an investment. So the route would be to get an investment fund where people who have um, you know five thousand, ten thousand pounds spare can invest, but knowing that it all goes into northeast businesses, all to create wealth here. All the profits that they get back go to people who live here and get spent here. Um, and in the same time as we're developing then the pipeline of investments, um, the, the customer base and all of these things, until we're ready at that point where the pandemic's died down, bank back loans, the instability in the system, all of that is out of the way. Um, and it's explicitly said that that is the route through that we're going to take. So we're on with it, despite the, the pandemic, but inevitably it's required a, a, a detour to deal with that. Yes, well, hopefully... The pandemic is going to end <laughs> and soon <laughs> sooner rather than later that, that is out of my control yeah <laughs> <laughs> well yeah <laughs> there's not much you can do about that but um i mean more generally what is your what's your vision for the uk in terms of devolution that's obviously a very big question but what kind of settlement do you think kind of strikes the right balance in terms of english devolution what's your vision for the country yeah um i mean, english devolution is absolutely the the, the right Hard to focus on um, in terms of well, I mean, in terms of Scotland, I don't want independent Scotland, but I want Scotland to have more um, devolved powers. Uh, you know, uh, as the person who's representing the the region, the borders Scotland with a, a border that's around about sixty miles. I haven't, I haven't been out with a you know a trundle wheel. I measured it. Um, but I don't want fences going up. I don't want you know all of the problems having with Northern Ireland to happen. Um, but what I do want is for um, city regions, I think that's where it works best, the functional economic area, you know, which, which is not a million miles away from the travel to work area. 
Um, you know, there's never a perfect line you can draw and says all activity occurs within that. Um, but um, where people will tend to go for um, cultural activities, you know, that, that by and large tend to go to Newcastle, um, as there's the core city of the region, um, all of these things, um, they have a, an economic geography of their own. And so decisions should be made at those levels. Um, and that requires us to have the decisions. I mean, if we look at something that, that hit the news just before Christmas was the integrated rail plan finally come out. Um, and it was uh, it was a pretty poor plan in terms of the fact that the Tories broke many promises that said now, yeah, surprise, surprise, Boris Johnson didn't keep his word. But um, it doesn't matter. You know, it was a prospectus that was in their manifesto and they didn't honour it. And now I don't know why they made such a mess of it. You know, obviously it was an argument with Treasury giving them money. Even so, what they should have done is given us the money in the north and let us decide how to spend it rather than it being decided by Whitehall. Um, and um, Helen Pitt, a Guardian journalist, um, did a, an FOI and said, you know, how many of the people who decided this actually live here? Um, and it was an you know, embarrassingly small number. Um, so I think that's where we need to go. Now, um, I'm not a fan of necessarily an English parliament. I'm not sure what that would achieve. Um, and there are certain things that, that absolutely belong at the national level, quite obviously defence, foreign policy, such things. Um, I also think taxation is better at a national level. Um, I don't want um, to end up in, in daft races to the bottom of who can cut corporation tax to, to cause someone to shift 30 miles up the road and all of these sorts of things. I think that would be very negative. Um, but um, there's uh, a lot of the things that I've, I've asked for in the paper are the powers to generate wealth here. And if we do that, that makes a big difference. Now, at the moment, every job we create we get no extra money for. So the fact that, that we've done most of the um, 30 years plan or half of the 30 years plan nearly there in, in, you know, in the first term, we get no more money for it. If I was um, a CEO of a global corporation, I'd, I'd hit the sales target by a factor of five, they'll be throwing money at me. So every job we create, I should get the earn back from it. Um, then, so that, you know, the, the first year, 18 months of the payroll tax that's going to treasury, give it, devolve it back to us so we can create more jobs. And that's the sort of process that we need to do. Um, and, you know, things like land value uplift. Um, when um, you put in public infrastructure, the value of the land goes up around it. So Newcastle's got, uh, and, and the, the region, the wider region, has all sorts of wagonways all over the place because I mean, the, the place was literally built on coal. Um, and we could open re new, reopen um, those as new metro lines. When you do that, the value of the property around it shoots up. It's a windfall, usually for land bankers and property developers. Well, let's have the power that we can capture that, that increase. We'll still let people have a proportion of it. You know, nobody loses out here. It literally makes the land more valuable, so let's generate it. And then we can start to control our own transport system in a way. So that's the sort of vision we need, these fiscal innovations. Uh, I'm not necessarily – well, I'm not a fan of um, taxing people more because it's, I think it's dysfunctional. You know, If you look at the um, – the tax base in the northeast, the business rates per capita, the tax base is £300. In London, it's 940 So if you want to raise the same amount of money on taxes, you've got to raise it three times higher. That, that just, you know, <laughs> it's it's punitive. It's, it'd be politically damaging, of course, um, but it's also economically dysfunctional. Um, so the, the power to generate it with a regional wealth fund, with earn back, with land value uplift, these are the sorts of things. Um, and I do think there's a lot to be gained from um, what we can do in terms of investment in prevention 
in, in public services. Um, you know, we spend a, a fortune dealing with all sorts of problems like mental health and obesity and things down the line. And if we invested more upfront, um, that would create savings. And some of these things are actually not immediately obvious. We, we tend to invest in the treatment, and absolutely so we should, um, but not in prevention. So, you know, a better public transport system would actually slightly reduce obesity because people would be walking that little bit more and then they wouldn't even necessarily feel that they were, you know, going out of their way to take exercise. Better housing produces better health outcomes. Um, uh, and, and it's a way to, to get all of those things to work together. Now, um, what works in inner London doesn't necessarily work in the northeast. Some of it will, some of it won't. And that's, I think, where it needs to be at a devolved level. And one of the things I've asked for is, is uh, a levelling up board. So, um, you know, obviously, um, I would imagine almost everybody watching this is a, a Labour member or supporter. Uh, nevertheless, the Tories do have a majority um, and um, a, a mandate to govern. But so often, policies that are developed in Whitehall just don't work here. You know, um, Kickstarter is a good example. A great idea, get lots of young people the opportunity to train and get six months' work, um, and yet it hasn't taken off. Um, and if they, if we had a levelling up board chaired by the mayor, representatives from the domestic departments in, and said, look, this is your national policy, um, but talk to us about how we can make it, tailor it and work better here. That gets the, the better outcomes. So I think that's what's really going to make a difference for English devolution. Um, I'm less of a, of a constitution nerd and much more of a, an outcomes nerd. Is it possible to actually make the kind of changes you're talking about while the Tories are still in power? I mean, that might seem like an obvious question, but it, I mean, COVID particularly showed that they were kind of picking fights with Labour mayors. Um, and then they've done the, the kind of funds, directing funds towards, um, I mean, basically marginal seats, places that they particularly care about in an electoral sense. You know, is is there, do you have much optimism about kind of making progress without first getting a Labour government in power? Yeah. Um... I mean, we're not going to get everything we want, but that's not going to stop me asking. Um, so, I mean, time will tell. Um, you know, I mean, it's not as if the Tory party is a, is a particularly a monolith. Um, you know, Boris Johnson was the mayor of London, but I don't think it's made any particular difference to how he's, he's interacted with us as, uh, as Labour mayors. Um, some of the things that some Tories um, get the idea of fiscal devolution, others don't. Um, so I think it is a, a changing picture there. Um, and you know one of the key things is you should be making the arguments anyway because um it, you can influence it and you, know, you might not get 100 percent of it if you get 10 percent or 20 percent of it it's better than getting none of it um so i think yeah um then not to go on the basis of predictions and much more of what's the best route anyway um and uh, and we are you know plugging ahead with a number of things that we can do with the limited powers and budgets we've got um yeah i just want to amplify it and get more stuff done more quickly I've got a question uh, that's kind of relevant to the sort of kind of policy ideas that you were talking about. Um, Heather asks, what, how about a full land value tax to return land wealth to pay for all public services and abolish slash reduce distortive and bad taxes? Um, absolutely, yeah. I think I mean, that's, that's clearly the way to go. Um, I would agree with Heather on that. Um, I think um, I'm not necessarily sure that a lot of this is works on a devolved basis. I mean, if you're going to have a land value tax, I think that would have to be um, national. Yeah. Um, uh, because you would inevitably need it to replace other taxes. What you don't want to do is bring in one tax on top of all the others and keep them there. 
Um, but um, the idea of taxing wealth, I think, is, is certainly where we should be going. You know, the interesting figure um, was published earlier this week that um, if you look at the median household wealth in the southeast, it's 504,000, and that's um, property, pensions, and so on. In the northeast, it's 168,000, it's exactly a third. Um, so there is a, a lot of leveling up to be done. But that's just the median. And in most of those cases, almost all of that wealth is when the top couple of percent. So I do think um, it is actually a little bit economically dysfunctional to be heavily taxing income, which is usually as a result of doing useful work, and not taxing or, or a much lower rate of tax on rent-seeking. So, you know, um, capital gains tax should be at least the same level as income tax. Um, if we look at um, dividends uh, and taxes, again, why are they lower? Why do you get taxed less on unearned wealth than you do on, on things that you've gone out and, and done your day's work on? Um, so I think um, those are things as well as land value tax I would like to see us move towards as a country. Um, but, you know, they're going to be um, national manifesto and, and debates around that, I think. Mm. Yeah, of course. I mean, we've got the the national insurance rise coming up uh, that will be kicking in just at a particularly bad time. Um, I wanted to just quickly ask you about national stuff just a bit more before we go on to some of the other questions that are being submitted. So, I mean, to what extent do you get the opportunity? I asked you about Rachel Reeves, um, but what to what extent do you get the opportunity to speak directly to Rishi Sunak? Um. Yeah, um, I think I've had one joint meeting with Rishi, uh, and before that, actually, one with um, Sajid Javid. Um, I also know, by the way, that some of the Tory mayors complain that they don't get to speak to, to people as often as they would like as well. Yeah. Um, and I think that varies depending on who they are and their personal contacts to some extent. Um, it's Is interesting. Meeting with, with all mayors, with all Metro mayors? Uh, that, yeah, with Rishi, the, the meeting we did have was, yeah. Um, it varies depending on, um, to some extent, which minister we're talking about. Now, now some of them, um, I might not agree with their policies, but um, they're yeah. easy to work with in the sense that they make themselves available. We'll talk to you, they'll have a frank and honest discussion. You know, I'll say, look, can we do something around this? And they'll say, sometimes, yeah, all right, I'll see what I can do. Um, other times they'll say, nah, um, either I don't agree with you or I do agree with you, but I've got no chance and I'm not going to spend political capital like the treasury on it um you know so that's you know as much as you can do sort of second or third hand so some of the ministers are quite good in the sense that we'll talk to you and there are others um that you can't get a meeting with um and um and, and that varies i think pretty much everyone else has found the same um you know a lot of the tory mayors found it notoriously difficult to get anything out of the department of education mm. what do you think of michael gove being appointed to sort of actually do some leveling up uh, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, uh, it's it's fair to say that Michael Gove is a disruptor and he wants to change things. Yeah. Um, we've yet to see exactly what's going to happen. Now, I do know there's been a lot of arguments between, um, I'm sure they would frame it as constructive discussions, but it's been arguments, um, between him and Treasury to try and get some money to do anything around levelling up local government, wherever else it might be, which is needed. I mean, the local government cuts are horrific. Um, you know, they're, they're, there are places that we can't even set a balanced budget in two or three years' time. Um, so um, he's, as far as I know, he still hasn't got any money out of them. So, you know, the, the whole point of having someone who's a senior Tory is because they should have more clout. Um, and we'll say, and if he does get more money for local government, then, you know, hats off to him, that would be a good thing. Um, beyond that, it's early days and we've yet to see. 
um, what's going to come out. The leveling at white paper, the latest is it's due out, um, I think, 24th of this month, but the date keeps shifting. So I, I'm not going to put um, a great deal of store in that. Um, and where they're talking about the big idea being about um, reorganization of district councils and, and unitarizing them, then um, I mean, that doesn't particularly affect the Northeast because that happened here some years ago. Um, I'm not sure that's necessarily going to make a great deal of difference um, in terms of outcomes for people's lives. What's What I would hope, um, and I have had discussions with Neil O'Brien and various spads and people like that about the sort of things in regional wealth generation, I would like to think that that's something that just because it came from me, they don't think, oh, that's a, you know, a lefty idea. It's a good idea regardless of who it came from. And I would hope that we get at least a pilot or a nod towards some of this sort of stuff. But um, I've had some positive discussions with them and they say, yeah, actually, you know, we kind of agree with you. Mm. Whether it happens in the febrile situation between now and the end of this parliament is a different matter. Yeah. In terms of Metro Pairs and the Labour Party, do you think that they get a big enough voice at the moment? Would you like to see, what what kind of specific moves would you like to see in terms of Labour shouting about the kind of stuff that you're doing? Do you want to be brought into shadow cabinet meetings, for example? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking that there's maybe a balance between kind of highlighting the work you're doing and working together and you kind of providing input in order to actually tell them what's needed and all that kind of thing. But at the same time, you probably, I mean, certainly Andy Burnham does, want to have kind of a distinct identity of your own, separate from the kind of national Labour team. Yeah, yeah, there's an interesting dynamic there, isn't it? There's a little bit of um, tension between having everything you want and, and conflicting. Um, every politician everywhere wants everyone to do everything they say. Um, so let's just dismiss that as, as fantasy land. Um, in terms of... I mean, it would be good to have one mayor in the shadow cabinet, I think. I don't think there's any point in having all of us there all the time. Um, and um, we'd probably work it out amicably amongst about ourselves um, who it was in order, largely that you're feeding in, yeah, because there are a lot of things that go on that, you know, um, there's one thing about policy being shaped at conference, which I absolutely believe should be the democratic way to do it. But then um, on the fly through the year, as things happen, as, as events occur, um, as the government do things and need for response, I think it would work better if there was um, a, a Metro mayor involved in those discussions. Um, I don't necessarily think it should be me. Um, and um, I think uh, there's a lot of benefits to that, yeah. Um, I don't know, I think that pretty much answers it. Um, yeah. Um, well, I suppose just finally, we should probably address the fact that there's like huge news going on today. Douglas <laughs> um, <laughs> Ross has uh, called for the Prime Minister's resignation, which is pretty massive. Um, I saw that a few months ago you said, to be honest, I don't really care who is Prime Minister. So have you been following the drama this week and at PMQs today? I have, I have. And I saw his um, non-pology. Um, you know, it's... Um, I used to do a lot of political education work in recessions, and one of the things that, that people said that hated more than anything else was politicians refusing to answer questions. Um, but the, the thing above that was the non-pology. So, you know, this is the... Uh, I accept that mistakes were made. And, and what did we have from Johnson today? It was, um, um, oh, I regret that things happened the way they did, which is basically code for saying, I'm sorry I got caught. I mean, that's not an apology. I think his best, you know, best defence would have been, um, I had nothing to do with organising this party because, as is quite clear, I can't organise a piss in a brewery. That's what he should have said. <laughs> That's basically what happened. So we yeah. have like 
after PMQs, we have these lobby calls with lobby journalists get to question kind of the Prime Minister's uh, spokesperson and press secretary and stuff. And it was utterly farcical today, more than usual. I mean, they were basically saying he hadn't, he hadn't received the email inviting people to that party. He hadn't seen the email. So basically, he's saying he just happened to turn up in his own garden at 6 p.m., <laughs> not knowing the party was going to happen. But he did go. I mean, it's just totally ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, about my comments about not caring who's prime minister, I mean, that, that's, I think I qualified it in saying, um, because I don't care who they are, I care what they do. That's what actually matters. It's not the personality, it's the, it's the outcomes. Um, and um, of course, if they get rid of him, we're still going to have a Tory prime minister. We're still going to have all of those people who voted to cover up Owen Patterson's corruption. They're still all going to be there. All the people who voted against um, kids having free school meals through the holiday. They're all still going to be there. All you know, so it's not going to actually change that much if he's replaced with another Tory MP. Um, yeah. And, and the worry is, in terms of Sunak or Cross or Dave, I mean, not really. Um, no, um, I mean, I don't know any of them well enough to to think that there's something about them that they've kept hidden and that they're secretly, when they become prime minister, going to become a good person. You know, in terms of. Uh, economic equality. I really don't see that from anyone who's going to get that position. Um, what I really want is for, you know, it, it's good that we're heading the polls, but what I really want is to cement this argument about economic competence, because by the time the next election comes around, we need to be winning back an awful lot of seats if we're going to gain power, and if we're going to be able to not worry about who's the leader of the Tory party, because we're in power and we can get hold of the, the national levers that we need to do to reverse what's now 12 years of austerity, which is devastating so many people's lives and life chances. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to move on to some of the questions that were submitted beforehand. And everyone who's watching live, keep submitting your questions on Facebook and YouTube and wherever you are, and hopefully we'll get to them as well. Um, so we had a couple of questions on the same topic. Always comes up whenever I have a conversation with absolutely anyone because... Labour members and Liberalist readers love this subject. So Samuel asked, as a mayor, how do you feel about the question of electoral reform with the combination of proportional representation for the House of Commons and effective regional devolution be an effective step in helping end the disparity between North and South? And someone else asked a similar question, saying you'll be aware of the upsurge in support for PR within the party. Um, people believe that a transition to PR would strengthen democracy, it would be good for Labour, bad for the Tories. And as a Labour mayor and a Labour heartland, what are your views? Yeah, um, I think the, the, the key to all of this is, is what difference does it actually make? Um, I am a supporter of PR. Um, I'm a, a member of the, the Labour campaign. I'm not an active campaigner for it because um, partly because I've got too much else to do, um, but partly because I think it's... Um, it doesn't matter so much exactly how you elect the Westminster Parliament. It, it's where the powers lie and what powers even they have. Because it's fair to say it doesn't matter who's in government at the moment. Um, there's so little, that, that there's so much outside of that that is you know, to do with international tax dodging, um, international treaties and things like that. That we actually, if we're going to make a difference to people's lives, we need control of economic levers. Um, so... Um, What's important is to get powers to the right level. And by the way, the city region isn't the right level for all the things. A lot of the things that are with local government should absolutely be with local government. Um, and I don't want, and I would decline, if I had the power to decline, were they offered to me. You know, I should not be running um, refuse collections. Um, they are far better at a local elect, uh, 
uh, local authority level. And even below that, actually, I think in communities, people should have some control over their parks. Um, and I'm not even sure why they're done on a city basis. I mean, there's obvious senses to do with, you know, um, economies of scale. But something should be devolved to a community level. Um, and uh, a combination of um, electoral reform, um, we've got the question of dealing with an unelected House of Lords as well in there. I think perhaps there's a case for um, that being a revising chamber elected on a different cycle um, and that on a, a PR cycle of a third of them every two years. Uh, and they've got the power to refuse reg registration, but not advanced legislation. And I think that that's quite a nice check and balance so that you don't end up with, you know, um, a fairly rabid right wing Tory party abolishing trade union rights and things like that. Um, which is which is where we've been. You know, I'm a big supporter of trade unionism and trade union rights. I think it's a, a key balance in economic power. Um, and then, so if we were to have, and again, I mean, if it had been designed, this, I probably wouldn't have come up with Metro Mayors as the first solution, but it's what we've got. It, you know, you can do a lot with it, so let's stick with it for now. Um, and economic levers coming down to that level. Um, and the, the really good thing, actually, about the, the, the Metro Mayor model, which I think was perhaps slightly accidental in, in George Osborne's mind, is that the local authorities are key players in this. And it only works if we all work together. Um, and in the north of time, we actually do, you know, despite it being a, a minority now, Tory administration in Northumberland, um, we've been able to do a lot. Um, got working on an officer level amongst the authorities with, with the officers in the combined authority working together. Um, so I think that's a pretty good governance model. Yeah. Um, I've got another question here. Um, talking about... Um, I'd like to ask him what he thinks about Saudi investment in Newcastle United Football Club. Um, he's welcomed Saudi investment in the city in light of their human rights record. Does he think this is wise? Um, well, to clarify, um, what I actually said was um, it's not the responsibility of Newcastle United fans um, to police international human rights any more than it is any other citizen. Um, and, and at the time of that occurring, it was, you know, Newcastle was getting hammered and for, you know, being responsible somehow for this. Um, there's so much dodgy money in football um, that, that it is an issue. Um, the Saudi regime is... Uh, well, actually, not just the Saudi regime, the, the Saudi state for a long period of time, not, not just this particular regime, um, has one of the most appalling human rights records on so many things. Um, you know, so, you know, I I'm, I'm don't necessarily claim Britain's brilliant at everything, by the way, um, but but it's, it's you know, fails into insignificance compared to the, you know, the Saudis' um, attitudes towards women, towards um, uh, the homophobia uh, that's there, you know, homosexuality being legal, so many other things like that, um, that... Um, You've got to, if you're going to tackle it, let's start with stopping the, the 20 billion pounds of arms exports there uh, and shout about that just as much as we say um, the money shouldn't be coming into Newcastle. Now, what you can't do is control it. Um, you know, so if you look at the, um, the money that's coming to Newcastle, 10% of it's actually owned by the Rubin brothers who give 1.9 million pounds to uh, the Tory party and, and funded Boris Johnson's campaign. Um, I'm not a big fan of that either, but I'm not going to start calling for the disinvestment in a football club. Um, so let's start with the really dodgy stuff of arms and then let's move on to the other stuff. Okay. Uh, I had another question asking you about the Constitutional Commission that was uh, launched by Keir Starmer quite some time ago now. Um, but we haven't had 
uh, led by Gordon Brown. Um, but we haven't kind of heard anything uh, for quite a long time now. I know that at the beginning they had they were involving mayors, and then we, we've kind of had radio radio silence for quite a while. Do you do you know what's going on with that? Have you had much involvement? Yeah, early on, um, I had some meetings with Gordon and some of the, the people around that and um, put some of our ideas into exactly where it is and when it's published, I couldn't tell you offhand, um, Sienna. Um, it was it was looking at a number of things, partly to do with constitution, partly to do with devolution of powers and, and, and you know these sorts of things that I've been talking about. Um, but short answer is I don't know where it is, um, but um, I wouldn't expect to. You know, I, I was kind of in the role of giving evidence to as opposed to in the steering committee in any sense. Yeah. Um, so, and I think probably come to a final question. Um, I think we can have a couple more. Okay, so there's one from Christopher talking about, I've tried to summarize, basically talking about how you've been described as the most senior elected Corbynite, um, and that some of the people that backed you during the election process uh, now either aren't Labour MPs, but technically a Labour member, we know who that's about, um, and a couple of others uh, have been removed from the party. Um, their question is, with recent talk of a new party being established uh, and current and former members considering such a move, what are your thoughts on that kind of debate on the Labour left? Mm. Um, I'm not sure that there's any truth in this. I, I, I mean, that was a report from, was it the Mail or the, the Telegraph or one of you? Uh, yeah, Telegraph. I find it hard to believe that Jeremy Corbyn would ring up a male journalist and give them the exclusive on this. Um, I think it's someone stirring mischief against the Labour Party, to be honest. Um, I can't. I can see no reason for that. The Labour Party is the party that set up the NHS, that brought in the the minimum wage, um, that um, nationalised the railways and the mines, um, that created the welfare state um, and the Open University, and so many other good things. Um, so no, um, I don't think there should be another party. Um, um, a, I don't think under a PR system it would work anyway, but I don't think it should even for other reasons should happen. Um, and I think what's needed to happen is that if people are unhappy with a policy direction, that they engage in a debate that's on policy um, than, than you know, sniping and, and picking at each other, um, which would serve us all a lot better. You know, there's, I mean, there's a Tory out there, party out there to be defeated first, I think. So your message to any sort of disgruntled members on the left of the party would be stay and fight? Yeah, stay in the fight. Um, there's plenty of good things going on, um, you know, in local government. Um, and um, I don't know, I, I, sometimes I think it's overplayed this, you know, which part of the party you're on. Um, and I think it's an easy and, and sometimes a bit of a lazy badge to pin on people, you know. Um, people like calling me the most senior elected Corbynista. Um, um, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Driscollista. Um, that's who I am. Um, you know, one of the good things about being mayor is there's 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 no whip, and I think that's quite healthy. Which back to your earlier point is, you know, how close do we really want to be to, to Parliament? It's a different role, um, and it works well because you you are responsible for your area rather than you know comments on national policy. Um, and I think perhaps one of the, the the best things we can do is to start to say, well, what is your opinion on this issue? What is your opinion on this issue? What is your opinion on this issue? Uh, and forget this idea that everybody has a fully polarised opinion that's either they agree entirely with um, Tony Blair on everything or they agree entirely with Tony Benn on everything. Um, I don't know anyone who fits into those camps. Mm. Okay, so I've got a final question as we're just finishing up now. 
um, from Michael asking, as a Labour and co-op mayor, what co-op policy have we gained from the mayoral office so far? I understand you've endorsed the NEU proposal for the supply teacher co-op. What has the mayor's office proposed so far? Yeah, well, that teacher supply co-op actually came through um, the mayor's office. So I had a meeting August 2019, I think it was. I might have the date wrong. Don't quote me on that. Um, um, with um, the regional secretary of the... Um, TUC, um, who'd said that some people have been talking about said so, had a meeting with those unions, fleshed it out, funded the business proposal um, that, that stacks up and is good. That co-op um, now exists. It's not trading for reasons of, sadly, COVID, because the last thing you're going to do is, is get anywhere negotiating with schools about their supply chain policy in the middle of what's going on. But it is there uh, and the funding's in place. Um, and uh, I think that's really important. You know, when people think about zero hours workers, they tend not to think of supply teachers. Um, but in, in many cases, not universally, but in, in far too many cases, schools are being charged £250 a day and the teachers are getting between £68 and £98 a day. And they're missing out on their pensions and they're missing out on their um, continual professional development. So this is an idea that the money from that goes into funding CPD, funding the teachers' pensions and things like that. So that, that's real, it's happening, it's going to happen and it'll get rolled out when it calms down a bit in terms of um, you know what's going on in the schools and staff shortages and all of these things because of COVID. Um, in terms of the other things, um, we now have agreed and it's been worked up um, and that's uh, a £4 million project um, to fund to directly fund um, the social economy co-ops and everything else in the North of Tyne area um, and uh, that's going ahead now um, and uh, it's been worked up it's going to happen um, I can see Michael making some comments um, everything I've said is exactly what happened when people came to say me uh, there may have been other discussions with other people um, but these people did come and they did meet me in my office and we did talk about it that so um, that is the way yeah um, and then that co-op is uh, is there yeah Great. Well, is there anything else that you would like to add, Jamie? Um, I think um, one of the other things is, is very much about um, the, the approach we're taking in terms of further democracy. I mean, people talk about devolution to, to mayors because obviously that's, that's what they're at the moment. Um, a lot of the things that we do um, that, that can be, we try to devolve as low as possible in terms of getting people involved. So we had the Citizens Assembly on Climate Change we had the, um, the approach of working with um, communities. So one of the difficulties you've got is if you want to spend a small amount of money, it actually costs you a fortune if you do due diligence and reports and things like that. So we set up our um, crowdfunder so that communities can directly um, come up with a project. Um, they, if they get a lot of local support and small donations, we put in a, a big chunk of money and get it off the ground. And this has funded things in communities like um, you know, elders recording their, their wartime memories, um, beekeeping, community gardens, all of these sorts of things, which is giving power back to the communities. And I think that's, you know, it, it's, it's good from an electoral point of view. But I actually think it's very healthy for democracy if people think they can engage with the state at some level and, and get a real influence over it. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for doing this event with us. Really appreciate it. And I'm sure we'll do something else like this soon. Um, we'll do another in conversation with you at some later point. Thank you to everyone who has been watching um, on our various channels, on Labourlist, etc. Please uh, sign up to our morning email if you're not already a subscriber. Um, we're trying to hit greater and greater heights in terms of our subscriber numbers. Um, and just make sure you keep 
following Labour list for news and comment about the Labour Party. Great. Thanks, Thank you so much.